Some names are forgotten in history, and understandably so. There's only so much space that we have in our cranial hard drives to remember certain things. But with that being said, it doesn't change the fact that history as we know it would have been vastly different. And life as we know it could have been vastly different if certain people had succeeded and if other individuals had failed. What would have happened in Israel and to Israel if Ishbi Benob would have succeeded? When you first hear that name, you might be like, I don't know. I don't know who Ishbi Benob is. So I don't know what would have happened if he would have succeeded. Would it have been great? Could it have been better? Or would it have been horrible? Well, you'll know more about who Ishbi Benob is shortly. If that name isn't familiar to you now, it'll be more familiar to you in a little while. Years back, when preaching through uh, 2 Samuel, I was driving, and I saw an advertisement um, at a bus stop for a program named Goliath. And it made me marvel yet again, and this happens to me even to this day, that sometimes I'll see advertisements for shows, secular shows, worldly shows, and I marvel at how often they use either theological terms, like that happens quite a bit, or they reference biblical names, and it happens quite a bit. And this wouldn't be the kind of show I would recommend for you to watch. I never saw it. But just by looking at the advertisement that said Goliath, it didn't look like, you know, a family-friendly, edifying bit of television. But I marvel that even people in this world who have never picked up a Bible say that's in their home, who have never read the narrative of 1 Samuel 17, yet they somehow know who Goliath was. He was the giant who was slayed by David. And maybe they learned it because they were watching like a sports program, pregame show. And one of the announcers said, you know, this is going to be a real David and Goliath matchup. And they said, David and Goliath, who's that? So they did a quick like, Google search and they found out, oh, okay, David is this guy and Goliath is that guy. But nonetheless, they know who Goliath is. And perhaps, ironically, it's the giant that David killed who is more well-known than the giant who almost killed David. Now, there are some obvious reasons for that. When you go through 1 Samuel 17 and you see the narrative drama in 1 Samuel 17 filled with all the bells and whistles of spirit-inspired narrative drama and the fact that that was a turning point in the nation of Israel. Things were different after that point when David goes into the valley of Elah and he stands against the giant of Gath, Goliath. you got a whole chapter devoted to that. And we have three verses before us devoted to the attempted killing of David via Ishbi Benop. So we can understand why he's not as well known, but nonetheless, I think we're going to see that it's an amazing portion of Scripture, even as small as it is. And we could ask ourselves again the question, what would have happened if Ishbi Benob would have succeeded? You know, providential working, the providential working of God in history is not only relegated to turning points, like 1 Samuel 17, It's also, even if not evident, it's nonetheless present in preserving points. This is such a one that we're going to see in 2 Samuel 21. Sometimes there are turning points with the bells and whistles of a turning point. We say, wow, that is when things change. And then there are preserving points where things could have dramatically went the other way. But they didn't. Because God has, in this case, preserved his king. Well, we'll see as we get into the text, as I'll provide a little bit of context when we get into verses 15 and 16, and that's where we begin. In 2 Samuel chapter 21, verses 15 and 16, where we read, 
when the Philistines were at war again with Israel, David and his servants with him went down and fought against the Philistines. And David grew faint. Then Ishbi Benob, who was one of the sons of the giant, the weight of whose bronze spear was 300 shekels, who was bearing a new sword, thought he could kill David. Now, not to give away the story, but just so you know, this is David's last battle. You could say that this is his proverbial swan song, at least in one sense. Let's set the scene. This was apparently a flashback. So note that this was a flashback. It's not a chronology. The chronology of this isn't tightly tied at this point to what has come before First Samuel, Second Samuel twenty-one. When you get to Second Samuel twenty-one, so begins the spirit-inspired epilogue. The inspired narrator is choosing certain episodes at the beginning of 2 Samuel 21 and, uh, and then this narrative. And then we see David's last words in the following chapter. An amazing story to close out the book. But this is part of the epilogue. And here we're looking back to a time when the Philistines were, per verse 15, at war again with Israel. Okay, so there's an indefinite time signature here. If you were going to ask me, okay, well, when did this happen? In the life of David and in 2 Samuel, if you were to go back to 2 Samuel chapter 5, verses 17 through 25, or you can also look at 2 Samuel 8, it likely fell sometime in between that time period, when there was ongoing war with the Philistines. If we're going to place it somewhere, I think that's the likely candidate. Concerning this episode, back to the text, David and the servants with him went down and fought against the Philistines. So they traveled from the highlands of Judah... They're going into the territory. They're going south into the lowlands of the territory of the Philistines. Now, when you look earlier in 2 Samuel, the other battles with the Philistines had the flavor of a rout. This, though, is different, at least as it's communicated to us here. We're told at the end of verse 15, and David grew faint. To borrow language from Isaiah 40, verse 30, even the king could become faint and weary. After all, David was not superhuman, right? David did not have this inexhaustible reservoir of strength. I mean, you could read about David's military exploits and you're like, okay, this guy appears to be superhuman. No, he wasn't superhuman. He was a man just like you and me and he needed rest and sometimes he became weary on the battlefield. And I think it's a good reminder for us that David did not have inexhaustible endurance even as you and I do not have inexhaustible endurance. Some of you might need to be reminded of that, lest you burn the candle at both ends for too long. You don't want to run out of candle to burn. At some point in this battle, David is battling, and at some point his strength starts to give away, and he becomes weary. Now, it's at this point that some commentators say they think that this happened at a point later on in David's life, like when he was an older man. And then other commentators would say, no, I don't think so. I don't think he was an older man at this point. And I would be with the latter. I do not think that David was an old man at this point. I think, for a few reasons I'll communicate to you briefly, I think David was maybe past his prime, maybe a little bit past his prime, but he was by no means an old man. And I say that for a few reasons. One, again, as I told you, there's no definite time signature here. And if you were going to place this somewhere, you would place it somewhere, I would argue, between 2 Samuel 5 and 8, roughly. Somewhere in there. Furthermore, when you look at First uh, Chronicles chapter 20, verse 1, you could see that this event is recorded right after the account 
with the Ammonites that's recorded there, which again does not suggest David being an old and elderly man. Why am I telling you that? Because I would argue that David did not grow faint on the battlefield because he was elderly, but because he was human. That's why he grew faint on the battlefield. Even the young men, per Isaiah, will grow faint and weary. It happens. And I think David here, maybe a little bit past his prime, was not excluded from that. So he's on the battlefield, he's warring in the midst of the battlefield, and he gets weary and it doesn't go unnoticed. Oh, there's so much that I could say about that, but I'll wait. If you're going to get weary on the battlefield, you would do well to have some New Testament soldiers alongside of you. He gets weary on the battlefield and it doesn't go unnoticed. We're told in the text, Then Ishbi Benab, who was one of the sons of the giant, the weight of whose bronze spear was 300 shekels, who was bearing a new sword, thought he could kill David. David procured quite a reputation by slaying the Philistine giant, and it was likely that Ishbi Benob thought he could procure quite a reputation if he slayed the giant slayer, the king David. He sees an opportunity. David is weary. He notices it, and he starts to make a beeline, as it were, for David. He appears to have been quite an imposing fellow. We're told he was one of the sons of the giant. Now bear with me for a moment, because I want you to understand this. That does not necessarily mean that he was one of the sons of Goliath. I say that for a few reasons. I'll give you a few reasons as we make our way through the, through, through the text. You'll see it play out. But it doesn't mean that he was one of the sons of Goliath, I would argue. Rather, it's more likely that he was one of the descendants of Rapha, the giant, who was the tribe father, so it seems, of the Rephaim. This is pretty interesting. I think this is amazing. So to me, this is like... Um, Rather, historical gold right here to kind of see how this played out in history. The Rephaim were a race of people who were known for their size. They were among the giants in the Scripture, known for their size. They seem to be, that general identification, the Rephaim, seems to be synonymous with the Anakim. You say, who were the Anakim? Remember when Moses sent Joshua and Caleb and the spies to spy out the land? They saw a lot of things there, and one of the things they saw there were the descendants of Anak. And they said that essentially wasn't a good thing. Why? Because they were like giants. It was like a whole bunch of Goliaths that were in the promised land. The descendants of Anak, the Anakim. Now, interestingly, when you go on, you see in the book of Joshua that Joshua had cut off all the Anakim from the land of the children of Israel. Okay, that's Joshua eleven twenty one, But they only remained, the Anakim, these giants, they only remained, very next verse, in these territories. Tell me if they sound familiar to you. Gaza, Gath, and Ashdod. That's Philistine territory. So the Rephaim seemed to be synonymous with the Anakim, and it's possible that Rapha was the tribe father of the Rephaim. That is who appears to be in view here. Two additional reasons for that would be, when you look at verse 19, we'll get there soon, it appears to be Goliath's brother in view, as opposed to one of his sons. And that's important because when you get to verse, um, when you get to verse 22 of our text, we'll see that it seems to be the family of Rapha that's in view when you look in the Septuagint. So we'll get there and we'll walk through this together, but back to the giant at hand. We're told he carried a bronze spear weighing about 300 shekels. That's about seven and a half pounds. 
And for those of you who would be keeping track of Philistine spear weight, it's about half the weight of Goliath's spear. So this guy has a lighter spear, but as you can see, he's no lightweight. He has an opportunity to take out the anointed of Israel, and he's looking to seize upon it. We're also told that he had a new, and you can tell in the text it's italicized, sword is what the translators guess. He had a new something. And so we don't think it was like a new t-shirt or a new hat or a new robe or something like that. But it's a military thing that he had. Likely, maybe, perhaps, a new piece of armor because new armor would be more expedient and efficient and useful in battle than perhaps other things. But perhaps he had a new sword, a sword that was more you know, suited to the warfare that he was doing. He had something new. We don't know exactly what it was, but he was looking to put it to use in his killing of David. Whatever his weapon of warfare was, it was a new weapon, and that indeed made it formidable, at least in part. So given, now notice this, given the mix of weaponry and opportunity, this giant thought he was going to be able to take out David. But weaponry and opportunity are not enough to stop God's sovereignty. It's a good reminder for all the people of God. In verse 17 we read, But Abishai... The son of Zeruiah came to his aid and struck the Philistine and killed him. Then the men of David swore to him, saying, You shall go out no more with us to battle, lest you quench the lamp of Israel. Now earlier, if you go through 2 Samuel, and you can see this a little bit in 1 Samuel too, but especially in 2 Samuel, you'd see David at times lament the harshness of the sons of Zeruiah. A couple of times earlier in 2 Samuel, will say, what have I to do with you, you sons of Zeruiah? Zeruiah being David's sister. But he had to put up with their harshness at times. That, and as a matter of fact, when he said that, 2 Samuel 16.10, 2 Samuel 19.22, um, both references had to do with when Abishai wanted to kill Shimei, or Shimei, or Shimei. <laughs> potato, potato, and if there's a third way to say that, you can choose your option there. But he knew that they could be at times harsh. You might even remember early on in 2 Samuel, 2 Samuel 3.39, he lamented the harshness of the sons of Zeruiah after Joab and Abishai worked together to kill Abner. You might even remember um, that earlier time when Abishai had the opportunity to put Saul to death with a single strike. Give me one strike. So you have the, the Abner issue of 2 Samuel 3 and maybe Abishai's connection there. You have earlier in 1 Samuel, you know, you see the dynamics there. These guys could have been pretty harsh and at times he lamented their harshness, but I'm sure he was really glad to have the son of Zeruiah with him right now in this moment. David was in distress. His life was hanging in the balance. And we're told Abishai, the son of Zeruiah, came to his aid and struck the Philistine and killed him. A few amazing things to note here. Note again... God's amazing providence in rescuing David. The invisible hand of God's providence so often becomes evident as you read through the narrative accounts of Scripture. Remember, I've told you about this in our study of Psalm 18. Remember that it was in 1 Samuel 23 when Saul had David surrounded at a mountain. Both sides, he's closing in. Then in God's providence, a messenger comes to Saul and says, the Philistines have invented the land. And God used the Philistines to save David. You might remember in 1 Samuel 25, David was so bothered by the disrespect that Nabal had shown both him and his men that he told his men, strap on your swords. And he wasn't only going to kill Nabal, he said, we're not even going to leave a male to the whole household of Nabal. 
That's a big problem. He would be committing a sin by killing innocent blood, if you will, by killing Nabal's family and children because he was so angry. And what does God do? He has this godly woman, Abigail, stand in the gap, as it were, and intersect him. You might remember in 1 Samuel 29 that David is in a position where he's serving alongside of the Philistines. And maybe he had intentions and designs to turn against the Philistines as they went into battle with Israel. But according to God's providence, he wasn't going to go into battle with the Philistines against Israel because the Philistines rejected him. Saved so many times by God's providence, and here he's saved by hot-tempered Abishai. Amazing. Amazing. Just when David grew faint and weary and the enemy thought he could slay him, God nonetheless delivered him. And I think it's really good for us New Testament soldiers to see that. You know, sometimes you could be so given over to kind of fear and pessimism where instead of remembering that the God that you serve holds the whole universe in His hand, He wields history as His instrument. He wields everything that happens according to the counsel of His will and for your good. And yet we could walk throughout the course of our lives and we could think, okay, what's going to happen? Is a trap door going to happen? Am I going to ask Him for fish and He's going to give me a serpent? Am I going to ask Him for bread and He's going to give me a stone? What's going to happen next? I'm scared because God is in control when we should be reminded and so thankful that God is in control. It should give us a sense of confidence just to say, I don't know what's going to happen, but I know the God whom I serve has everything in His hands and He wields history for the good of His people. It's amazing. It should just make us excited to think that way, yet we're so given to fearfulness. And fearfulness can raise its ugly head in many ways. And I think using our unsanctified imaginations to imagine everything that could go wrong is one of the ways in which we fan the flame of fearfulness, yet when we look at the life of David, God shows us His amazing creativity. I could rescue David through Philistines coming to attack Israel. I could rescue him through a woman named Abigail. I could rescue him through hot-tempered Abishai. <laughs> I've, got, I've got a whole bunch of tools at my disposal. A whole bunch of ways in which I can rescue my people. Furthermore, I think every Christian, this is important to note, I want to note this, I think every Christian should be very diligent to address the character flaws that they find in their lives. Right? So if, if you have a certain like, issue that keeps like, raising its head in your life, you know, it's like, you, know, you want to address it. You don't want to just pretend like it's not there. You want to mortify that. However, however, you don't want to make that an excuse to just disconnect yourself from the people of God. If you love Christ, right? If you love Christ, yet you're legitimately fighting some sort of sin issue, whether it's like a temper or something else, I want to encourage you not to disconnect from the body of Christ. You look at Abishai right here, and apparently, when you look at the text of 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel, he had issues of quick-temperedness. He had issues of anger, but he was faithful to the Lord's anointed. And as such, he was there on the battlefield. See, if he wasn't there on the battlefield, he couldn't have rendered the timely help that he did to David. David was weary. And Abishai, warts and all, if you will, was there. And I think there's something to be said about the people of God making sure that in these days we are together. Because if somebody's weary on the battlefield and you're not there, you can't help them. Regardless of whatever issues you have, if you've disconnected yourself from the battlefield and you're not there and someone's growing weary on the battlefield, you cannot help them. This is one of the many problems, and they are legion because they are many, 
as it relates to supposed online church. It's just not the way that the church is meant to function. It's as though taking Jesus' blueprint and paradigm and saying, that's interesting, Jesus. So you want the church to assemble, but I think we could do this in a great way. We could do it even better. We don't really need to assemble. I like the blueprint that you gave us, but I have a better blueprint. Do not fall into that. Regardless of what comes down the pike and whatever excuses fallen humanity would say, these are your excuses for not gathering. Be satisfied with your computer screen, with your phone, connect it through an HDMI cable to your TV, and be satisfied. Raise your hands in your living room and worship. Don't do it. If you're sick, it's something different. I get that. That's why we send out the links to our Sunday morning service to the people who are on the mailing list within this church because we don't want to be a stumbling block to other people outside of the church. There's not other people outside of our assembly who need to be watching our services online. They need to be at a local church. We're not a substitute for anyone else to going, not going to their local church, but if people in our church are home and I've been blessed by a live stream that I could partake of, I get that. But we want to make sure we're on the battlefield together. I think that's so important. Abishai would risk his life for David. Reminds me also of Aphrodite. Uh, not Aphrodite. <laughs> Definitely doesn't remind me of Aphrodite. <laughs> not at all. It reminds me of Epaphroditus, whose name apparently reminded me of Aphrodite. <laughs> and Priscilla and Aquila, all three of whom are said to have risked their lives for the Apostle Paul. See, you've you got to be involved in each other's lives to be able to do that kind of thing and They did that. They were New Testament, I think, reminders of those who had risked their lives for the people that they served alongside. Last thing I'll say, because I think there's a lot for us to observe here. I want you to notice this. David slayed Goliath alone in God's providence. But this time, for this giant, he needed the help of Abishai. I think it's a good reminder to us that just because God has delivered someone in one way at one time, it doesn't necessarily mean that's going to be the way He delivers that same person the next time. Right? You can't bottle up the past and say, this is how God helped me in the past, therefore this is how God is going to help me in the future. No, you follow the paradigm and you let God be God and help you in any way that He deems fit. David was strengthened before to meet giant, the giant Goliath on the battlefield. But this time he would be dependent upon the support of others. And I would say, who are we to think that we could go on in our own strength without the protection and strengthening that comes from other brothers and sisters in Christ? Well, after this close call, back to the text, you can see the men of David uh, didn't want any more close calls. After all, it makes sense that David would be the primary target in the midst of every battle that he was a part of. You could look at 1 Samuel 22, uh, 1 Kings 22, and you'll see an example of how the king might be the central target of enemy opposition. So doubtless, such would be David. So his men swore to him, saying, You shall go out no more with us to battle, lest you quench the lamp of Israel. So this was serious. I mean, they weren't just like, hey, bro, you need to take it easy. Like, like they, they swore to him, you're not doing this anymore. Humanly speaking, David was the lamp of Israel. A term later used as a designation that had reference to the king. You see that in 1 Kings chapter 11, verse 36. So David was the lamp of Israel in the sense that he provided direction and guidance and leadership to Israel, without whom the nation would have been in some measure in darkness. Now you can see this kind of sentiment, the view of the, the Jewish people towards the king, you can see this kind of sentiment 
expressed via a different metaphor in Lamentations 4.20. Quoting from the ESV, the breath of our nostrils, the Lord's anointed, was captured in their pits, of whom we said, under His shadow we shall live among the nations. So you see that kind of language that's used in Lamentations 4. The breath of our nostrils. Under His shadow we thought we should live among the nations. In some measure you could see that the hopes of the nation of Israel rose and fell with the success of the Lord's anointed, of the king. It's hard to hear that identification, the lamp of Israel, and not think of David's greater son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is not only the lamp of Israel, but who was the light of the world. And when I see this, you see the men of Israel here saying, we can't have you going out on the battlefield. Because lest they quench the lamp of Israel, they thought so much of David's importance. They thought so much was riding on his life. And to a degree, they were definitely right. They would marvel if they knew about the singular importance that was riding on the life of David's greater descendant, the Lord Jesus Christ. The one of whom it is said, he said himself, I have come as light into the world that whoever believes in me should not abide in darkness. The greater descendant of David, the Lord Jesus Christ, is the only way in which anyone could ever escape what Jesus describes as the outer darkness, where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. David's presence could provide assistance for temporal victory in the midst of a battle, but the only way for eternal security was going to be through the life and death of the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who is both the root and the offspring of David, the light of the world. And because that light can never be quenched, he's risen from the dead and he lives forever. You who trust in him, you will live also forever. Thanks be to God. It's so fitting then that David, who was described as the lamp of Israel, he said in 2 Samuel 22, uh, verse 29, and we saw this in Psalm 18, he said to the Lord, For you are my lamp, O Yahweh. Yahweh shall enlighten my darkness. So the one who was called the lamp of Israel understood who was his lamp. You are my lamp, Yahweh. You shall lighten my darkness. Now I do think there's also a sense in which this story is appropriately included because the inspired narrator is winding down the account of David's life and recording a portion of text when he steps down from the battlefield and the Lord continues to fight for his people. So note that, because as we go into the verses that follow, you want to be thinking, how would this impact initial readers of 2 Samuel? It was a good reminder to them that although David was stepping down, let's see what happens. Does Yahweh continue to fight on behalf of his people even though David is not on the battlefield? With that, we get into a few brief episodes here beginning at verse 18. Now it happened afterward that there was again a battle with the Philistines at Gob. Then Sibachai, the Hushathite, killed Saph, who was one of the sons of the giant. So now... We see that sometime after what happened in the previous verses, there was another Philistine battle. And the giant slayers not on the battlefield. What is going to happen now? So now we got a chronology happening here. David almost died. He was weary. He was saved. But now he's not on the battlefield. And there was again battle with the Philistines at Gob. Quick note about Gob. The place isn't mentioned um, anywhere else. This verse along with the following verse is the only place where it's mentioned. 
If you were to look in 1 Chronicles 20, verse 4, the place is identified as Gezer or Gezer. John Gill summarized these two possibilities by saying either the place had two names or these two places were near each other. I think that's a good way of putting it. There's also a third possibility. The Septuagint and the Syriac record that place as Gath. So we're a little unsure of the location, but we're not unsure as to what happened there. Sibachai, the Hushatite, was there. And you're like, he was there? Yeah, Sibachai was there. I know you've been wondering where he's been. He was there, Sibachai, the Hushathite. And what did he do? He killed Saf. And you're like, no, he killed Saf? Yes, he killed Saf. Now for us, that, that, for us that's what, like, like well, who are these guys? They were, they were known in their day, but they're not known by, by us, but they were known in their day nonetheless. And this is apparently a big deal. Um, before we see what he did, I'll make mention of it briefly. Just a quick note about who this man was. Sibachai, the Hushathite, he was one of David's mighty men. You see that in 1 Chronicles 11.29. He was in command of the 8th division in which there were 24,000 men, 1 Chronicles 27.11. And he killed Saph, a.k.a. Sipai. You'll see that a lot in the Old Testament, that people can go by different names. Saph, Sipai, different names. And he was one of the sons of the giant, one of the sons of Rapha, and I think it's the tribe father of the Rephaim who's identified here. And he wasn't the only one, so he was killed here. So this man goes to battle, Sibachai, kills Saph. And in verse 19, we're told, again there was war at Gob with the Philistines, where Elhanan, the son of Jaher Oregim, the Bethlehemite, killed, and then we see inserted in italics, the brother of Goliath, the Gittite, the shaft of whose spear was like a weaver's beam. So again, now there's another battle. God came through. David is off the battlefield, yet God came through, and he does it yet again, and he does it again at Gob. Now, interestingly, the word brother is not in the text. The reason why the translators insert that, and I think rightly so, is because if you go to 1 Chronicles chapter 20, verse 5, it's a parallel passage. We see that he is identified as Lami, the brother of Goliath, the Gittite. So that's why it's included here, and again, I think that is rightly so. You can see the problem, by the way, if you take out the word brother, right? You take out the word brother and you read this verse, then we're told that Elhanan killed Goliath the Gittite. And you're like, no, we know who killed Goliath the Gittite. David did. I mean, we see that very clearly in 1 Samuel 17, 51. And we know where he did it. He didn't do it at Gob, he did it in the Valley of Elah. Nonetheless, some people have suggested that Elhanan was another name for David, even as Jedediah was another name for Solomon. You see that in 2 Samuel 12, 24 and 25. Per the pulpit commentary, the Jewish Targum regards Elhanan, God is gracious, as another name for David, and instead of Jer or Jare, reads Jesse. So some suggest that there could have been two Goliath the Gittites, like maybe the son of Goliath who bore his name, that's what some would suggest. But again, I think in light of the context here, um, that doesn't become likely. I think what is most likely the case is that what we have here is a passing down of scribal error that was happening here, not in the original text, but in the passing down of the text, and the truth, by God's gracious providence, was nonetheless preserved in the Chronicles account, where he's identified as a brother, a brother of Goliath the Gittite, the shaft of whose spear was like a weaver's beam. And that brings us to the last episode of our passage, in verse 20, where we read this, 
Yet again there was war at Gath, where there was a man of great stature who had six fingers on each hand and six toes on each foot, 24 in number, and he was also born to the giant. Now at this point, somebody might say, really? Like, come on. Have we, have we entered into the realm of science fiction? Like, do we have to take it up a notch? Like, now you're dealing with a monster giant. Now, lest you start to think that way, I want to tell you, um, it's pretty interesting. When you go through the commentaries, you could see commentators laboring to show how, I don't know, common's kind of an extreme word, how often people were found to have six fingers on their hands and six toes on their feet. I think maybe one of the most replete examples of this, and yet is brief, is found in Adam Clark's commentary. I'm not endorsing all of Adam Clark's um, theology, but nonetheless his commentary on this passage, I think, is replete with historical examples. He says the following, This is not a solitary instance. Tavernier informs us that the eldest son of the emperor of Java, who reigned in 1648, had six fingers on each hand and six toes on each foot. And Malpertuis, in his 17th letter, says he met with two families near Berlin where sedigitism, apparently means having six you know, fingers on your hands, six toes on your feet, was equally transmitted on both sides of father and mother. I once saw a young girl in the county of Londonbury in Ireland who had six fingers on each hand and six toes on each foot, but her stature had nothing gigantic in it. The daughters of Caius Horatius of patrician dignity were called sedigite because they had six fingers on each hand. Well, Caius, a poet, was called sedigitus for the same reason. Now, I'm not telling you this so that when you shake hands with people in church, you could take like, you know, double look at their hands. Like, apparently this is really common, so somebody in this room must have six fingers on their hands. I'm not telling you this either so that you could add you know, the giant that we're reading about here to descriptions of people who are much less imposing than who he was and appeared to be. But I do think the inclusion of these details, I do think it helps us to get a sense of how imposing this giant was as though, as though he was monster-like. And part of that, part of it, I think, is just recording history as it was. I mean, it's just, it's just the fact of the matter. This is a historical detail which further validates or further affirms the Word of God for those who especially who were reading it and who knew the details. Now, this guy, interestingly enough, he not only had a big stature, but as you'll see, he did, you could say, have a big mouth as well. The beginning of verse 21 reads, So when he defied Israel, note this, this is important, who does that sound like? Who did that? Goliath. Remember Goliath standing in the valley of Elah? Remember him boasting, mocking the God of Israel and the armies of Israel? This guy is walking right in Goliath's footsteps. We don't have any excerpts of his speech. We don't know what he said, but we nonetheless put it under the classification of dangerous folly. He's defying the God of Israel. He's mocking, essentially, the people of God, the armies of God, and by extension, God. And I think it's a good reminder to us that, yes, being apathetic to God is dangerous, but being antagonistic to God is even more dangerous still. And there's more to learn. Whose footsteps is he walking in? He's walking in Goliath's footsteps. Look now to the second half of verse 21. Jonathan, the son of Shimea, David's brother, killed him. Hmm. So if Jonathan is the son of Shimea, and Shimea is David's brother, who is Jonathan to David? 
That's his nephew. And so you have this man walking in his uncle's footsteps. I just find that amazing. You think about what's happening now at this point in the story. So now you've seen three accounts of men who post David being on the battlefield have gone into the battlefield and have what? Essentially done what David did. It's as though the days have changed. You have to appreciate this from a historical perspective. Inspired history right here. 1 Samuel 17, remember what happened? Goliath is there in the battlefield. Where is the men? Where are they? Is anybody going to go battle Goliath? No, they're all essentially quaking in their boots until one shepherd boy steps into the valley of Elah. But now it's a different day. Times have changed in Israel. God rose up this man and through his courage and through his fearlessness, he's going into the battlefield and now others are seeing his example. They're fighting alongside of him and when he's not on the battlefield anymore, now they're going to the battlefield. You see the ripple effects of courage and faithfulness. And I think that's inspiring. Who knows how your example of walking in godliness and in courage and in faithfulness will have a ripple effect on the lives of others. You don't see it immediately in this way. But now when they're in a case of kind of being independent, not independent from God, but independent from David on the battlefield, they are nonetheless walking, if you will, in David's sandals. And I find that inspiring. David still served a valuable role for the nation even though he wasn't on the battlefield. But the people were reminded of how the exploits of the people of God and the advancement of the kingdom of God could still happen even without David on the battlefield. And oh, how the kingdom of God continues to be advanced through the people of God and all the individual narratives that other generations won't be familiar with. Right? People aren't, you know, presuming the Lord does not return in the next 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, right? People 100 years from now, hypothetically, would not be telling stories necessarily of when you hosted people over your house. (laughs) Right? Like Sibachai, we're like, who's Sibachai? Like, we we just don't know certain things, but in the eyes of God, it's not forgotten, and the kingdom continues to be advanced through faithful brethren, but don't underestimate the way your example can have ripple effects positively to others. And we're also reminded about the ungodly example of Goliath having a ripple effect on this giant who fell. Right? Walking in the shoes of ungodly Goliath. Times had changed. David was, in a sense, the God-ordained spark to ignite the flame of future faith-filled warriors. And the ripple effects of faithfulness can be many. David's example stirred up other men towards faith and fearlessness, and perhaps yours will do the same. But know that you are mandated, nonetheless, to stir up one another towards love and good works. And part of the way that will happen is by your example. By your example. I think, I think if I were just to kind of give an extended application to this, I think part of the way in which this happened is because the men spent so much time with David. Like they had been with him on the battlefield. And by extended application to us, I think the more time we spend with Christ, sitting at His feet in the Word, and the more time we spend with Him in prayer, the more likely we are to look more like Him, think more like Him, and act like Him. Even as apparently these men had had David rub off on them. That brings us to verse um, 22. These four were born to the giant in Gath and fell by the hand of David and by the hand of his servants. Now, interesting, uh, the Septuagint at this point in verse 22 reads like this. 
that these four were, quote, the offspring of the giants in Gath, whose family was Repha. Now, for reasons that I've already mentioned in this, um, in this message, that appears to be the more likely rendering of what was originally written here. As far as the end of the verse, we're told that they fell by the hand of David and by the hand of his servants. So David participated in Abishai's uh, victory over Ishbi Benob, and each of the other giants fell by the hands of the names of the men mentioned. So what does this passage, a good way to end, as we often did in studying 2 Samuel and 1 Samuel, what does this passage teach us about God? I think it can also teach you something about the enemies of God. If you want to see a paradigm that kind of plays itself out, look at Goliath and look at what happened to these giants. You defy the God of Israel, it does not lead to a happy ending. Right? Every mouth, to borrow language from the New Testament, every mouth will be stopped and the whole world will become guilty before God. The blaspheming mouth can only go on for so long. I know it can be frustrating to hear. I know when you hear one of the the big wigs who participates in the World Economic Forum say that Jesus is fake news, I know that could be frustrating. But blaspheming comes to an end. By God's grace, it will come via repentance in time. Somebody seeing the folly of what they have said concerning the Lord Jesus Christ and say, I I can't believe I said that. Lord, I'm so sorry. And they see the great grace of forgiveness found through Jesus Christ. But you're reminded over and over again in the Scriptures that whether it's the little horn described in Daniel or whether it's Goliath or whether it's a giant named here, defying and blaspheming the God of Israel has an expiration date. It can only go on for so long. But I also think we're meant to see something else here that's very important and we could easily overlook. I think we're meant to see the attribute of God's faithfulness. See, this isn't just a military annal. This isn't just history for the sake of history. This is inspired narrative. This is inspired history. And part of what you're meant to be reminded of, especially if you read the earlier history, is that God is faithful. This text screams, God is faithful. And part of the reason why it does is remember what we overheard. You're like, remember what we overheard? This was like seven years ago, George. I don't know if I could remember (laughs) what we overheard then. Bear with me. Bear with me. Remember what we heard in 2 Samuel chapter 3. Abner told the elders of Israel in 2 Samuel, he said this, beginning at verse 17 and through verse 18. In time past, you were seeking for David to be a king over you. Now then do it. For the Lord has spoken of David, saying, By the hand of my servant David, I will save my people Israel from the hand of the Philistines and the hand of all their enemies. So when the Philistines fall, when giant after giant falls, what are we meant to see? The glaring words, God is faithful. He keeps His promises. And you need that. You need to continually be reminded throughout the course of your life that God is faithful. Every moment. He's keeping His promises. He's not leaving you. He's not forsaking you. His Spirit continues to abide in you. You're sealed until the day of redemption. Until the day of the, when the purchased possession, as it were, comes into the presence of God and you receive your glorification. You've been sealed with the Holy Spirit. He's going to continue to order your steps. He's going to continue to work all things together for your good. He's not going to leave you. All of these promises continue to be true because God is faithful. 
So what can you learn from the falling of three giants post-David's leaving the battlefield? Among other things, you could be reminded, God is faithful. All of his promises are true. My sins are really forgiven. You're forgiven. You really have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. You have peace with God. You've passed from death to life. You are a new creation. These are true because God's word is true. Amen. He's still working in you, both to will and to do his good pleasure. He began the good work in you. He will be faithful to complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. What a text. Thanks be to God. Let's go to our God in prayer. Father, we thank you that you are faithful. Thank you. We thank you, Heavenly Father, that um, by your grace, having seen Jesus Christ as our sacrificial substitute, the one who was faithful to the point of death, even death on the cross, that through his sacrifice on our behalf and through that spirit wrought faith in his work, Lord, we thank you that our sins are forgiven. And that every promise is yes and amen for us in Christ Jesus. Oh, Father, we thank you for the text before us. And we pray that as we continue on in this um, battlefield, Lord, that is the Christian life, may you, by by your grace, Lord, may you continue to find us on that battlefield. May you use us, Heavenly Father, to give strength to those who are weary, to be an instrument in your hand, Lord. I know according to Isaiah 50, I believe verse 4, that the servant in the servant song, your Messiah speaking, that you gave him the tongue of the learned, that he might speak a a word in due season to him who is weary. So help us, Heavenly Father, to have timely words for those who are weary and help us to be on the receiving end, Lord, being around the people of God so that when we're weary in the battle, we might find ourselves strengthened by your grace through others, Lord. Oh, Heavenly Father, may you continue to advance the kingdom of the gospel of your Son, And we pray, Father, that you would help us to wield the sword of the Spirit well, knowing, Heavenly Father, that the advancement of the kingdom is not contingent upon our sword wielding, but upon the covenant faithfulness of our God. Help us to look at history as we know it and our lives as we know it as being in your very hand. And you wield history and providential sovereignty, Lord. You exercise that sovereignty for the good of your people and the advancement of your kingdom. May you help us, Lord, to walk in such courage and by your grace, faithfulness, so that we might have an effect on others and that there might be ripple effects of faithfulness that are seen, Lord, in this local church and in our families. We ask these things for your glory, for the advancement of the gospel of your Son, and it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.